Ahoy! It is your boy, and today is Sunday, November 19th. Uh, the weather is getting very comfortable. Um, I don't know if it's like this for you, wherever you happen to live, but I've lived in the Bay Area for about 16 years or something like that. But every year, I kind of forget, or I, maybe I should even say from season to season, I kind of forget what each season feels like, because the Weather in California, or at least where I live, is very temperate. It's very much the same. Of course, there is fluctuation during the seasons, but you kind of go about kind of forgetting that seasons exist at all because the weather is just kind of uniformly nice. It's actually one of the reasons that I feel sad about leaving the Bay Area uh, in the in the relatively near future, which seems likely on some level, because it really is the case. Where else do you go in the country where the weather is this nice? And there's really no other place. Even actually, now that I think about it, how does this work? Because even if you look, uh, what's the difference between is latitude vertical and longitude? I'm gonna go, I'm gonna say latitude is vertical. But if you just draw a map across the United States from San Francisco, I don't know what city you hit, but I guarantee you the weather there fucking sucks. You know, and I don't know why that is. Like, shouldn't it be pretty uniform? Maybe it has to do with elevation or something like that. But the point I'm really driving at is that. The weather is great all year round, and when it rains, it's not awesome, but it really is very, very scarce. I mean, you maybe get half a dozen days of rain, maybe throughout the entire year. Now, we'll see how that shakes out with global warming, because I think the at the end of the day, the whole world's getting shook up like a, like a snow globe. Not that it's getting colder, it's getting hotter, but I just mean that in the sense that everything's kind of out of whack. But... Um, I had this thing. I actually just flew back into town. I'll tell you about that, I, I suppose. But I came back uh, into town, and as I was walking from, it's called the BART station. BART is our one of our forms of transportation around here. From BART, the BART state. Wait, first of all, I have, I have a qualm here. You're not supposed to say the BART. You're just supposed to say, oh, I rode BART. And if you say I rode the BART, then you sound like a dork, apparently. I've had people call me out on that, although I still say it. But you do say the BART station. So I walked from the BART station. But actually, maybe it's just because you use the article, the, because you're talking about the BART station. Because you can't say, I walked from BART station. You walked from the BART station. But maybe you get away with the because you're talking about the station itself. So anyway, this is compelling content. <clears throat> I walked from the BART station to my house. And as I was walking, I realized that the, the season had changed in just the course of like 24 hours, you know, I sort of go about, um, you know, the spring and the summer and everything's very uniform, but once the leaves fall off the trees and we don't have beautiful fall leaf changes like you do in other parts of the country, you just look up one day and all the, tr all the leaves are gone and all the trees look a little bit sickly, but I, I always sort of forget that you know? And then when it's warm, once it gets warm again, I forget what that was like as well, but it's this constant, uh, amnesia, the seasonal amnesia that's happening here, where, um, you know, I'm always sort of eager for one or the other, because once I've been in the cold for long enough, I'm ready for the warm weather. But especially when I've been in the warm weather long enough, I'm ready for the cool weather. You know, of course, you can be more out and about when it's warm. And, you know, I do admit I have a little bit of that seasonal affective disorder. And so I usually get pretty sad in the wintertime. Um, but still, I don't know. I like bundling up. I like being able to wear a, little, a couple more layers. And, um, you know, people ask those types of questions like, would you rather freeze to death or would you rather burn to death? And for me, I'd rather freeze to death, I think. 
Um, but yeah, speaking of cold, I actually just flew to Portland for my friend's birthday. Uh, I had a friend who turned 40, longtime friend of mine. I've known this gentleman for maybe 20 years. And, uh, you know, he's married. He just had a baby. He has a beautiful home in Portland. And uh, was turning 40. And just with school, I had assumed that I would not be available for it. And that was kind of that, you know. Uh, I was happy for them, but um, I was not going to be able to make this kind of seminal celebration that they were going to have. So, but then I was kind of just thinking about it and kind of marinating on it. I mean, he just had a baby and who knows what the future is going to be for me. I could be uh, abroad. I mean, I will be abroad at least for three months in the spring. And uh, I'm not really sure if, if, you know, maybe I'm coming back right away. Maybe I extend my time there. I'm not sure. But I thought... Um, yeah, if I don't do it now, I, I'm not really sure when I'll be able to see them. And I was kind of like working on my paper. And I was thinking, you know, if you really kind of knuckled down, you could probably get this paper to a pretty good place where if you really wanted to fly out there very, very quickly, that's that's probably fine. Also, as I'm saying that, I'm also realizing that if you want to fly out there anyway, that's probably fucking fine. I mean, you can't spend a week out there. But basically what it is, I just looked online and saw what flights were available. And I was like, well, yeah, I can very, very, literally, I can fly in on Saturday and get there midday and I can leave Sunday morning and I'll be able to be there for the party proper. And so, uh, yeah, just made sure I could crash there, make sure they didn't have anyone else. Uh, Just made sure they had a couch for me pretty much. And of course they did. And so bought my tickets last minute. And so, uh, yeah, Saturday flew to Portland. Uh, had a great time with them and flew back right away. So it's a bit of a whirlwind. I admit I feel a little disoriented. I as soon as I got I went to bed not too late, probably around midnight or so. Everybody else was up kind of raging and partying and playing music and all that sort of stuff. And I I know I was kind of falling asleep on the couch and <clears throat> and uh, sort of woke up in the dark at some point. So I assume I went to bed about midnight or so, and I was up about like five forty-five or something. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's always weird to go to a new city and you just sort of have to remind yourself how big the world is, or at least, you know, the sun rises and sets everywhere else as well. Because I've spent, uh, I've been to Portland many times and especially as a musician, you know, I probably played maybe half a dozen shows in Portland, but especially right before I ended, before I stopped playing music, I probably was there and maybe three three times over the course of like two years and that was just for music and uh my last partner we had also gone to portland a couple times uh her family was sort of split uh or i should say many of her family members were split across portland and seattle so we were kind of back and forth and i got some sort of shitty notification here um um but yeah so we were kind of poking our heads into portland and seattle all the time and it's kind of weird because if you ask me now, I can, of course, I can kind of picture downtown Portland, but um, Portland's one of these like very cool cities in the United States that just has a, a like it's it has a huge reputation. But when you actually go there, at least to me, I've never been that impressed by it. Um, I feel bad for my friend uh, who who lives there to say this. I mean, I I love Portland. It's a great place to be. Um, and I guess when you actually there's kind of like a trifecta of cool cities on the coast, which is like Seattle, Portland, and San Francisco or the Bay Area. And San Francisco is exorbitantly expensive. Seattle is now exorbitantly expensive. It's on par. If it's not as high as San Francisco, it's not far from it. Portland is a very, quote, cool place to live. 
and um, but you're not going to be necessarily it's not necessarily going to have the San Francisco price tag. Um, um, but yeah, I think it's just one of those things. I know I kind of touched on this, I think, in my last installment here, but we were talking about politics and we were talking about, you know, although I feel like I'm on the left and very far on the left in on many issues, at least, you know, there's something about the polarization of our politics where, you know, people on the left have gone so far that just relative to them, I'm, I'm a right wing in their eyes. And, uh, you know, that certainly, I mean, I, I live in Berkeley for fuck's sake. I mean, we're like the epicenter of the sort of far left political culture that's here in America. I mean, if you had to sort of pick one city that sort of uh, to emblematize uh, the far left political spectrum, it's pretty much synonymous with Berkeley and and, and uh, UC Berkeley specifically. Um, but um, which is actually, I don't want to try to flag that in my mind because I have an interesting thing that kind of happened. But um but uh, yeah, so that's definitely present in uh, in Portland. So you kind of got to deal with that. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe yeah, maybe the, maybe the only thing holding me back from Portland is the weather. You know, it's very you know it's actually kind of funny because although places are very similar culturally, uh, and whether it's politics or you know there maybe I don't know musical aesthetics or something like that. Um, there are just sort of subtle differences in clothing that you notice that just aren't prevalent. Like it just lets you know that you're in a new place because um, I was with my friend and, and so we met up with some other people who happen to be at this kind of uh, brewery or something like that. And so as we show up, it, it's just like a typical hipster brewery, you know? The people who are working there, you kind of get the sense that they feel pretty cool that they're there. Like, I, I don't know. Um and there's just a lot of cool people kind of sitting around. Like, this is a very hip place to be. And it's like, th these places are all over the, you know, uh, uh, you, you find these types of places in Seattle, you find them in San Francisco, you find them in Portland. Um, but the thing is, you kind of look at what everyone's wearing and you realize it's very different. So in Portland, everyone wears flannel. And I was like, oh, we don't do that in the Bay Area. Like, uh, or if, yeah, I don't know. I and mean, of course, uh, you'll find it. But it was almost like it was a standard issue uniform. Like if you move to Portland, you basically get like your, uh, you know, your, I don't know, your Portland rucksack, your military issued Portland rucksack. And in there is like four flannels and uh, mustache wax. Because they do, a lot of people do wear have like the fucked up mustaches in Portland. Not that those are not present in the Bay Area. Those are definitely fucking here. But uh, I feel like, what, what are those big bikes with like the huge front wheel from like the, the I don't know, from like the 18th century? I feel like Portland's the type of place where you see a dude with like a waxed mustache, like literally riding that bike down the street. Yeah, something about the something about the cold weather. People really go like, uh, 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 I don't know, they go The Shining out there or something like that. Um, I will say the good thing though is at my friend's house, money is a beautiful, beautiful home, but uh, it was very nice to just kind of sit by the fire. You know, I don't know if I mean I, I assume people have fireplaces here out in the Bay Area. They just don't seem that prevalent. But even out here, one of my favorite parts about the season, too, is uh, you're kind of walking through the neighborhoods, and one person will have kind of a fire going. And, uh, yeah, that smell just kind of cuts through the cold air. And uh, that's one of the signs that you're kind of in the new season. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I was really hoping to get more time and material out of my, <laughs> out of my friend's birthday. But I'm not really sure what to say. Maybe it's, uh, yeah, maybe it's weird to see sort of, you know, people in their adult lives. 
And by that I mean, you know, this friend of mine, I've known him for a very long time. And it's just very cool that life is long and you get to, not a lot of people, but, you know, if you're lucky enough, you have a few people that you carry with you through life. And, uh, yeah, there was a moment where we were actually, I happened to see some old photos. Um, My friend's father had passed away. And unbeknownst to me, they had used one of my recordings in uh, a, a slideshow that was played at their father's funeral, which is very touching. Um, but by virtue of him showing me that, uh, I was able to see a lot of photos. And I was able to see... And, and so they were like a collection of photos of my friend and his father and their family over the years. And so I was able to see a lot of old photos of my friend. And uh, yeah, it's just crazy how life is long, you know, and uh, you get to live about 10,000 lives. And, uh, you know, to be able to sort of do that with, you know, at least one person, maybe a couple more if you're lucky, but to be able to kind of go through life with some people and, you know, to go from, you know, when we were living in Tucson together, I was like, you know, um, languishing at a junior college studying music and I met this person playing some of my first shows in Tucson, just playing like, you know, coffee shops and bars and that sort of stuff. And I was, and actually the other thing that kind of made this trip cool is, uh, and I'm wondering if I should use people's names. I guess it doesn't really matter, but I don't know how else to talk about people. Uh, my friend's name is Matt, but he was like, oh, Brian is also going to be there. And Brian happened to be this other person who was playing music in Tucson. Um, same kind of acoustic style of music. And, uh, you know, when you sort of, when you, when you enter any kind of music scene, uh, you're kind of have your head on a swivel. You're kind of looking around, looking for who you're musical compatriots are going to be or who your peers are or who else is doing the same thing and there were other people as well but um myself matt brian and a couple other people we were you know always kind of booking shows together or seeing each other play or that type of thing and so i had not heard or from or seen this person since i left tucson pretty much maybe maybe they had dropped me a line or we had connected every once in a while um but yeah, so I, I, that was just kind of in the back of my mind somewhere. Uh, but, you know, when they walked in, obviously we had both aged. But um, it was just very cool because I remember I had a very clear... It's it's just we're sort of unfair with each other, which is we, we sort of calcify people in our memory of them. So like Brian for me was always Brian at 19, and I just assumed that he was like the exact same person. But the minute he walked in, I was, I was very warm, and it was just very nice to see him, and... Um, you know, uh, we're not close enough that it's one of these things where it's like no time had passed at all. But there, it's just nice that, you know, people who haven't seen each other in forever can just kind of fall into a conversation and, you know, whether it's talking vulnerably or talking about your lives or even just joking around, it's nice that those things can happen. But also seeing the change in somebody, you know, they were, you know, he was very funny, very gregarious. And um, I just, I, I think, you know, when everybody meets at like nineteen twenty uh we're just all so insecure and like a li- there's a kind of manic energy to us around that time and so yeah it's it's kind of unfair that that people sort of ca- you know people in our memories or people from our past we sort of i don't know we pin them down like a i don't know i'm picturing like a butterfly or something in a photo album or whatever we recall that person we just sort of picture them as the person they were in the, when they're 19 and of course life is long and who knows what people have experienced and you know so you sort of meet someone at 19 when you're all running around like playing shows and hoping that you're famous someday. And then you bump into that person, you know, 20 years later, we're all older, 
you know, most of the people I run into now are married with kids. And so this person has three kids and they're married and have a professional career and everyone still plays music. And in the interim, we've all had various types of successes of some sort, you know, but to be meeting in this chapter of our lives, we're all knocking on the door of 40, which is crazy. Um, but, uh, yeah, to just see how people change. And, uh, so yeah, bumping into this Brian person, um, because I think admittedly, if I'm just being honest, I think there's always, you know, I was just very ambitious as a musician when I was younger. And I think that also made me, I don't want to say competitive because I don't, I, I don't think anyone that knows me would have ever described me that way. I'm not, I don't, uh, you know, I don't think my presentation is as a competitive person and I'm certainly not like a, the type of person who undercuts people, but I am a little judgmental and <laughs> to say the least. And, uh, um, yeah, so I feel like I always kind of kept people at bay. And one, I think that was just a part of my personality at the time. I mean, I was 19. I mean, this is before, you know, you know, 14 years of therapy or something like that. So, I, you know, I always kind of kept people at a distance. Very few people have I kind of let into my life. And so I always had who knows how many reasons why I couldn't let somebody in. There was something about them that kind of disqualified them or whatever. But it was when I was bumping into this person, Brian, and just sitting on the couch, there was a way in which I was like, wow, I'm really enjoying my time with this person. I really, in, you know, they're, they're, yeah, just very, very endearing, very, very warm. And I realized, man, there's probably a lot more people I could have let into my life and been closer to, you know, if I had just given them a shot. And um, so that was nice. Yeah. And there was something else kind of dancing in my mind I wanted to come back to, which I can't remember. But it was something I said while I was sitting on the couch with this person. Something about time. Oh, it was this idea, too. I mean, I remember being 19, 20, 21, playing music in Tucson, Arizona, and really feeling like I was running out of time, <laughs> you know? Like, I felt like at 19 or 20, I was, like, an adult. And uh, not that you're not an adult, but you're really only adult-ish at that age. Now, maybe if this was back in the early 1900s when, like, uh, people went to war at, like, 16 and had children at, like, 20 and, uh, you know, maybe died by 35. Um, uh, maybe even had, like, a couple kids pass away in the interim. But, it, um, you know, especially for our generation, like, 1920 is adult-ish. Like, you can barely take care of yourself. You're, you're almost like you're being reborn. Like, you know when a baby deer is born? And it just sort of like uh, stumbles on its legs. It just sort of wobbles. It can't even hold itself up. That's kind of what being 19 or 20-ish is. But I just remember like just being tortured by the fact that like, you know, I just had to be successful. I was like, well, I'm going to be, I, if I'm not a successful musician by X age, oh, my life will be over or something like that. And just living with that pressure. And it's just so, so the funny thing I was imparting to this, uh, my friend Brian was, Gosh, it's just so funny that life has been as long as it has been. And there were so many experiences, you know, if, you know, I wish I could have just tapped myself on the shoulder at 19 or 20 and just said, hey, man, relax. Not only is everything that, or I should say, not only is most of what you want going to happen, it's going to take exponentially longer than you could ever imagine. And it's not going to look anything like it. And by the way, the things that you think are going to make you happy are not going to make you happy. You know? It's actually, I mean, because I guess what I'm thinking now is like, if you had, I mean, although many things that happened to me, the types of quote successes that I had were the exactly the types of things I wanted, whether it was, I wanted to play this venue. Oh, well, first of all, it was just, I wanted to play music at all. I wanted to make a record. 
But the fact that you, one, got to make the type of music that you had in your head eventually would have, you know, was, you know, what was a dream of mine. The fact that the types of shows that I wanted to play, you know, many of, a lot of that stuff happened to me. Or, admittedly, it's things like, oh, I want to have this many listeners online, especially a stream became a thing. That stuff happens to you. But none of that stuff makes you happy. Um, Not that it's not good, not that it's not a success, but it doesn't abide. There's nothing about it. You know, it's sort of like uh, there's that what's that famous speech in Fight Club, the things that you own end up owning you. But we constantly and I still do this, but we constantly go about our life thinking, oh, once I buy that thing, I'll be happy. And even if my life goes to shit, well, at least I'll have that thing. Now, it sounds very silly when you talk about things like a Prada purse or uh, I was talking about buying firearms. You know, Uh, uh, there's different things that we kind of attune to. And for maybe when I was younger, it was like musical instruments. You know, oh, if I get this effects pedal or if I get this piece of software or if I get this type of guitar, if I upgrade my guitar to this quality, then I'm going to be not only be better, but it's going to solve something for me. And also you think that there's going to be some type of contentment or a feeling of arrival that sort of endures after the after this entrance of this uh, object into your life. And of course, it doesn't do that. So when we talk about... Uh, uh, you know, when we talk about physical objects or like uh, overt consumerism, it's very easy. We all smile and nod. But we all do this with our lives, you know? We all do this with, oh, once I reach this level of success, once I make X amount of money, that's going to make me happy, and it doesn't. And this is the part where it sounds like I'm, I'm sort of falling into platitudes, but I really think it's worth considering. I mean, I really do think about this a great deal, especially as someone who's at a kind of juncture in their life where they can kind of choose what the next chapter of their life looks like. You know, I, I really just don't mean to sound... Yeah, I don't mean this in a platitudinous way. I mean, I, I really think it's worth reminding ourselves that, you know, people like Elon Musk... First of all, this th- this came up a couple times just over the last 24 hours. One, it was with my Uber driver. It was with the people I was hanging out at my friend's party. But there was, it was this idea of money, right? And I think this is... In some ways, I was kind of getting at this point. But to be sitting in a room full of adults who are all kind of at, at, uh, uh, around 40 years old... And I feel like a bit of an odd man out because, you know, I'm in college. I'm, and by the way, I'm an undergrad. You know, I'm not like in graduate school or something like that. And it constantly, well, this happens anyway. Um, when I'm like just in class or something, people assume I'm a graduate student, even, the, you know, even my peers, because they just see me as, well, first of all, people think I'm a teacher. <laughs> constantly, I'll just be in the hallways and people just ask me where things are and I have no idea. Um, not that even the teachers have any idea. It's just a huge campus. But people just uh, I, people see me as like an authorial figure. And even amongst the people in my classroom, people often think I'm just a graduate student. And I can see the kind of gears turning in their head. They sort of talk to me as a, uh, as a graduate student or conversationally. They ask me about grad school or, or whatever. It just sort of comes up and I have to correct them. And I always, you know, do it, you know, I don't know, but I always preface it with, oh, I totally know why you would assume that, right? Because I'm older, but actually I'm an undergraduate student and I see the kind of recalibration kind of going on in their mind. And I try not to, I try not to look too deeply into it, meaning I think there's a little bit of, disapp- disappointment is not the right word, but it's a little bit of judgment. It's a little bit of, maybe a little bit of embarrassment on their part because they're not sure. They're kind of attuning to see how I feel about it. Like, do I feel bad that they've assumed I'm a graduate student or you know, whatever the case may be. But for some people, it's a little bit of a, like I, I really had, I had one student, he's Chinese American 
and we were sort of talking and I said, well, actually I'm an undergraduate too. And he said, what? And he just, hey, it's like the thought had never crossed his mind before that somebody could be as old as I am and still be an undergraduate. And so if I was a different type of person, maybe I could have been offended. But I just totally understood, like in that moment, this person had never encountered this before and they're just, they're just processing, right? So I have to sort of deal with that. But that's, all, that's amongst younger people. So that's one thing. When I'm around people my age, it's a little more vulnerable because I'm sort of standing in the kitchen with my friend's wife and they have some friends who are over. And when I'm, I, maybe you're already with me here, but what I'm, I'm trying to paint a picture of like a bunch of 40-somethings or people knocking on the door of 40. Most of them are established in their careers. Many of them are married, have kids or are about to have kids. And so everybody just kind of assumes that we're all on the same page. So when I'm standing there and through, I was wearing actually this Middlebury sweater and Middlebury was this, uh, it's a college in Virginia. During the summer, it turns into a language school. I was studying Chinese there for a couple months and happened to buy one of their sweaters. But she asks me, this person, I'm sort of meeting a friend of a friend. Oh, did you go to Middlebury? And I said, oh, I went to their language school. Oh, and of course, what did you study? Oh, I studied Mandarin or something. And then they asked me, oh, so do you teach Chinese? And I'm like, no. And then they said something very interesting, and I, I don't remember how it happened exactly, but maybe maybe it came up that I was like a student or something, and I heard her say, like, oh, so you're getting your PhD in Chinese. And I just, it, it sounds weird, it's not like I just let it fly, and like, it just, it, there wasn't an opportunity for me to correct them. But in my mind, my takeaway is, oh, that's, of course, people are, see me at my age, and they are, they hear, whether they hear education, they're not, they're just connecting dots based on their experience and, and what they sort of generally know to be true about their subjective experience, right? So I'm just sort of dialing that in. And there was a moment at the end of the night, I'm having kind of a one-on-one with this person's husband. And uh, again, we're talking about school. And this is after hearing a very protracted conversation between this sort of new person I'm meeting, the husband of my friend's wife's friend. I don't even know if I said that right. But um and my, uh, my friend Brian, they've had a protracted conversation about their professional careers. They both work in software for major companies. Um, and so I'm just, just kind of listening to this and thinking, oh, my life is nothing like this. Uh, I'm nowhere near, I, I, yeah, I'm not deep in a career the same way I hear these two people uh, talking about it. And I'm talking, to, and then I have a one-on-one with this gentleman. And again, the topic of a school comes up and he's like, oh, so are you, are you getting your master's or something like that. And I was like, no, actually, I totally know why you would say that. But as it happens, I'm actually an undergraduate. And I see like the no- the nod. Oh, okay. And it's a little bit like there's this thing that we do in life, which is like, no matter what job somebody has, you like, you just go, oh, well, that's cool. Oh, well, there you go. Like literally when I was driving, when I was getting picked up from the airport and I was getting lift, you know, I was going to say Ubered, but it was actually lift. I was getting lifted from the airport to my friend's house. First of all, I had one of these, I think it's something about me, like I just bring it out in people. I'm very kind of conversational and I'm happy to keep the conversation going. Maybe part of it is like, as a longtime crisis counselor, I, you know, I, I know how to ask open-ended questions. I know how to reflect. And I think uh, that gives people permit, you know, when you're on the, when you're on a crisis line, you're kind of trying to get people out of their shell and there's a lot of skills that you have to sort of just non-verbally, or I don't know how to, it's definitely verbal, right? Because that's the only communication you have over the phone. But I'm saying it's a, it's just a te- technique or a strategy of getting people to, to demonstrate that you're listening uh, and to kind of give them permission to say more. And so, 
you know, inadvertently, if I'm like in the backseat of a car, I do a lot of open-ended questions and like reflection. And so people just kind of keep going, right? They're, 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 they keep seeing the, the conversational green light and they keep telling me more and more. And I realized in the 30-minute drive from the airport to my friend's house, I had heard this guy's whole life story. I had a complete picture of his like financial situation and his marriage situation and his what he likes to do for fun. I mean, I know that this guy has gone on cruises. I know he like gambles with his wife every once in a while. I know about his past jobs. I know the last couple of cities he's lived in. I know his reasons for moving. I know his situation with his children. Um, but he tells me at one point, he's like, well, I just kind of do this, but really my job is I drive for Frito-Lay, which is a chip company. And he's like a delivery driver for Frito-Lay. Now, that guy's got a hustle. Admittedly, probably not the coolest job in the world. But I hear myself when he says that. I'm like, oh, well, there you go. <laughs> and it's like I'm like affirming. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. But what it is is I'm, of course, what I'm doing is I'm anticipating the fact. I hear a little vulnerability in his voice about saying that because I think he probably knows it's not the coolest thing in the world. And so I'm trying to meet that vulnerability with uh, assurance, right? I'm trying to let him know that, like, oh, I've heard what you said, and I'm not going to be like, oh, okay. You know, I'm not going to be like, oh, well, now I'm in the presence of somebody who doesn't have a super fucking cool job. And uh, the point I'm really trying to get at is there's a, t that, there's a type of interaction that happens with that when you're 38 and you're sort of explaining to people that you're an undergraduate student because they're trying to do some, one, one, they're thinking, oh, this is exceptional, but then they're also trying to fill in the story for themselves. I see the kind of gears turning in their mind. And they're trying to think, oh, well, what's going on here? Like, why is this guy 38? And why is he just an undergraduate? But what they're also doing is they're retroactively recalibrating the conversation that they've had with you. And this is not a malicious thing. This is just what people do, right? And actually, this sort of drives at something interesting, which I'm, I'm going to feel vulnerable talking about. But, it, but it, yeah, it just sort of follows from what I'm talking about. I'm going to divorce this from any sort of context, but let's just say I heard anecdotally from somebody who had this very, uh, this experience, and it was sort of tangentially related to this idea that I've talked about, which is, although I am on the left, I feel like the comportment and the stance of where many people on the left are now, and I don't say the left uniformly, because I'm trying to say I am on the left, that's where my politics lie, that's where I see myself on the spectrum of politics. And yet there are people who are still, who are uh, even more left than me, who by virtue of their position have made me feel as if I'm on the right. Um, and this is an example that is uh, relevant to that, which is somebody was in a very progressive city and they encountered somebody who was a Zoftig sort of heavyset, uh, appeared to be male, had a beard, had a full beard, and had very just sort of passively and very politely said to this person, oh, hey, what's up, man? And the person sort of froze and looked at them incredulously and just said with a lot of vehemence, like, oh, did you just gender me? And it, it, it obviously it was this very like contest, contestatorial kind of encounter or confrontational encounter. And I, I, I don't know how the person responded, but I, I'm sort of putting myself in that situation where I'd be like, oh, yeah, I, I did. I'm so sorry. But um, the thing that sort of stands out to me about that is like the incredulousness of that moment. Now, I don't want to... I know I always paint in a broad brush or whatever. I don't want to say everybody on the left is like that. But what I do want to point out is that's, a, a, you know, we all know that we live in a world now where that's a very likely situation. Now, there's a whole conversation to be had about this individual, which is if they are male presenting and they do not identify as male, uh, and that's who they, that's how they actually experience themselves, of course, 
it's going to be very frustrating and they're going to have to do a lot, a lot of educating for people if they go about their life and people assume they're male and people address them as male. And that's very difficult for that person. And I don't want to minimize that. But this is the part where at least I'm either calcified in my relative conservatism. The part I don't get is the incredulousness, right? That that person sort of stops, at least the way the story was related to me. And whether or not it happened that way, I think we all agree that it could have happened that way and that it does happen this way. I mean, I've seen it happen this way. I mean, I go to UC Berkeley. I, I, I very literally see and encounter this type of thing all the time. It's the incredulousness. Like, oh my God, did you just gender me? There's something about the way that, and it's bizarre they're going into politics, but there's something about the way that this sort of far left thing has sort of presented themselves, which is, why are we all acting like we're not living in the same world? You know, like you're a male presenting person with a beard. Why are you incredulous that I'm uh, approaching you, uh, assuming that you're male? And what I'm trying to do, this is just a circuitous way to get back to the situation that I'm in with my, <laughs> with my age and my school. Like if every time I talk, and, and by the way, it's every time I talk about school or the subject of school comes up, nobody assumes or even entertains the idea that I'm an undergrad because the overwhelming, the vast majority of their experiences in this life are with people who are, if they're undergraduate, they're within a certain age range. If someone uh, appears to be 38 and they're talking about school, of course they're going to assume that that person's in a higher level of education. Or when they hear language like, oh, I'm returned, what do you do? Oh, I re returned to school or, you know, I'm, in, I'm a full-time student or something like that. They've assumed that I've had, uh, I'm changing careers or something like that. And, uh, you know, I'm going back for my master's or my PhD or something like that. Now, you know, maybe there's an argument to be made about how, you know, on some level these things are vastly different. Um, for example, like no one's going to, you know, no one's going to excoriate me or have prejudice or bigotry toward me uh, for where I'm at in my school. But I'm just talking about that moment of education or recalibrating for the other person. And what I'm saying is, is I would imagine that if that's how you appear in the world, um, you know, and maybe you just get fed up of doing this, but shouldn't, isn't the appropriate response something like, hey, I totally understand why you are, uh, um, it would assume that I'm male and yet I don't, I actually identify as female. That gives that person a chance to kind of recalibrate. It's also polite, um, which I think is, I don't know, not given enough currency these days. Um, you know, and I think part of it is we're just sort of primed from like social media, like these sort of minute, everyday sort of inevitable encounters that we have in our life. So, mu so much of us are saturated with social media that we just see this one moment as indicative of the drama that we see playing out on social media. And so when we encounter, when we encounter you know, whether it's people of opposing viewpoints or people who make these kind of social faux pas, at least that's how we're sort of treating them. We sort of see them as somehow indicative of the, of the, um, uh, the, the, the torrent of media that we've consumed, right? This is why I can't understand these people who kind of, uh, you see this all the time now. These people get in these kind of like verbal confrontations. A lot of them happen at airports. A lot of them seem to happen in people's driveways. But you just have these two dorks like who pull their cameras out and say, hey, say that again. And then they just start filming each other. And it's this very performative confrontation. It's just a goddamn nightmare. And I just think, who has time for this? It's just dork on dork crime is how I feel about it. Um, uh, but where am I going with this? Oh, something about politeness. Something about, there's this other thing too that I think is getting lost on people, which is 
I remember in my last job as a person in a semi-leadership position and as someone who had to kind of educate and appropriately people about the culture of our workplace um, uh, and also, uh, you know, uh, training people who are going to be acting, uh, interacting with and being a support system for a diverse community, we obviously have to be very aware of our impact, especially, the, there, you know, for anyone who's done therapy or any type of counseling, there's just, there's a power dynamic there, which is you're perceived as a person of some expertise of some sort, not that people think that you're a licensed therapist, but there's just a, there's just a power dynamic there. And so that's something that we have to be really mindful of. And especially as we're just talking with people over the phone, there's a lot of opportunity to make assumptions about people's identity or circumstances, which if you're really trying to be a support system for somebody, um, making those types of assumptions, you know, it's, you know, is it going to be damaging? We could probably argue over that word. But I would say it could certainly impact the level of care that you can provide to people. I would certainly agree with that. But there was this thing that came up all the time. And I just sort of looked up one day and it was just like the default ideology, uh, not just in my work, but in, in the world in general, or in sort of these kind of leftist circles, I would say, which is this concept of impact. Uh, I'm sorry, intention versus impact which is that although your intentions may be good, that actually doesn't matter. The thing that's the most important is the impact that you have on that person. So if somebody says, hey, you saying X made me feel Y, as the person who did that, it's rude or inappropriate to say, oh, well, that wasn't my intention. My intention was, you know, I was all the way on B. My intention was B. You know, that that somehow is... Um, how do I say it? It is uh, sort of invalidating that person's experience and that you're actually doing more more harm. By not just taking responsibility for the impact, you're sort of harming that person twofold or something like that. Now, I agree, I agree with some of that. I think it's certainly true that people are inadvertently harmed by the things that we do that are not our intentions. And if that's brought to us, I think we need to receive that sometimes <laughs> with some grace and to take ownership of that. Um, and yet, I just, I think we've, I, I just don't buy, I, I, it's just, it doesn't, it's not true to me that, in, that intention doesn't matter. Um, because there's all sorts of ways that I can, I, you know, I, can, I can't foresee the impact of a thousand things that I do. But there's also a lot of people in the world who are not well. You know, and uh, I, there's just no way I can go about my life and just sort of be accountable for the potential impact that every action that I have has on a person. I, you know, I can't control what, you know, what someone's life has been like, what their individual experience is. And I guess what I'm saying is I don't necessarily take ownership of how my identity and how I live in the world, assuming I'm generally well calibrated and a good person, how that negatively impacts somebody else. You know, as a cis white male, is the case that, you know, people who have been harmed or attacked or sexually assaulted or especially as a 38-year-old male in a, in, a, in a majoritively younger community, I see how people react to me, especially women, you know, they kind of assess like, what type of dude are you? Because I'm sure they go through their life and there's a lot of older dudes who like leer at them. So I have to be very intentional about the space I keep around people, sometimes the familiarity that I have with, uh, uh, you know, females in my class. And sometimes I'm a very friendly person and I just have to read that people are just not interested in connecting with me. And so I just have to sort of, you know, keep my distance or something like that. 
Uh, but the point I'm trying to get at is I'm also not responsible for that, though, right? Um, I just kind of have to be who I am. And I ha- on some level, I have to make pe- people, people are responsible for their own feelings to some degree. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't want to completely minimize that, right? Like sometimes we, there's a, there are teachable moments in life where we actually aren't aware of the impact that we're having on other people. And when that's brought to our attention, we really should consider that for the most part, as long as we trust the source, right? Like there's this other interview question that I would constantly ask people that's like, I forget how to word it now. I've only asked it 500 times. You'd think I'd have it seared into my brain. But I guess I've kind of asked people, oh, I usually ask people like, what's a what's a what's some difficult feedback that you received in the past? Feedback that was hard for you to hear. How did you take that? And of course, everybody has the sort of stock response. Well, oh, I was on my job and I thought I was doing great. And then my boss told me that my performance wasn't where it should be. And of course, it was very hurtful. But, you know, I sort of, uh, rather than sort of internalize it, I sort of thought about it and I recalibrated and we talked about uh, how to change things moving forward and yada, 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 yada. So that's like job training 101. And so there is something like that that needs to happen in life where we're kind of going going about our lives. We're not really, the, not really aware of the impact that we're having. And so we can kind of look inside and recalibrate. But also sometimes, you know, especially in our current climate, um, I just feel like if, if that were me, like if I was in every... Or let's put it this way. I obviously have an emotional response every time I'm sitting across from someone and they assume that I'm a graduate student, right? It makes me kind of feel bad about where I'm at in my life. It makes me look at the uh, social, the, the social, sort of social milieu, right? Of course, the normative way of living is that we kind of go to college when we're younger and, you know, that wasn't my journey, man. And uh, I was kind of hopping about. And how dare people apply these kind of normative constraints to me? Uh, there's a lot of people who don't go to college when they're younger, who, for whatever reasons, for some people, it's financial. Maybe that person was, challenged, you know, uh, they were dealing with their mental health. You know, and so they had this circuitous route where they got a job or whatever, and now that they're better, they're back in school. And, you know, how dare we assume, you know, what level of schooling that they're at? Like, you're, you're, you're making them feel bad. And it's like, yeah, but also that's just the way the cracker crumbles, man. <laughs> and it's not, I guess what I'm, I'm getting back to this idea of intention, which is most people don't mean harm. You know, they're really just doing that thing, which is the overwhelming vast majority of their experience is that's what that's like that is it's normative for a reason it's common for a reason it's the expectation for a reason because that's actually what the majority of people are doing and uh you know yeah it's a little weird for me but that's just part of my job in life like i have to deal with that when i'm sitting across from adults that i'm meeting and they're making assumptions about where i'm at in my life i have to deal with that But I can also make my life easier by anticipating that and having you know having prepared how I'm going to respond in those moments. Not just for them, you know. It's not just this subservient genuflection or apology. Although maybe there is a little bit of that in there, where I'm saying, "Oh, I have to thoughtfully maneuver it because I'm, you know, for whatever I'm trying to make it easier for them." But you know, I need to. I'm actually trying to. You know what I'm actually trying to do? I'm actually trying to save my dignity in a way. And again, maybe, maybe again, this is sort of like indexing a kind of like power balance between us, right? But I guess what I'm saying is I'm doing it for my self-preservation, meaning I can't like, uh, you have to pick your battles, you know? (laughs) Like I can't just get upset about this every time. And there's just something kind of miscalibrated about assuming that this says something about other people. 
people are just kind of going based on their common experience, right? So when that person assumes certain things about me, it's not because they're a bad person, even if it impacts me poorly, right? Even if it makes me feel bad about who I am and where I'm at in my life. That's where, that's what most people do. And so what, when I'm in that moment, I've just learned to say, oh, I totally understand why you'd say that, right? And maybe you saw where this is going, but I, oh, I totally understand why you'd say that. And yet this is actually the case. And people go, oh, okay. And whatever happens in the moment, I don't know, but I, they take that with them, you know? And maybe the next time they encounter someone who's an adult and they say, they'll, you know, most people want to do the right thing. Most people don't want to make people feel bad. And maybe the next time they're sitting across from someone who says they're in school, they may just think to ask, oh, are you an undergraduate? Right? We'll have some kind of socially, if we all approach conversations that way, eventually we would all get to a place where we would have some type of canned response, right? Like, so I'm not saying it's great, but when I hear that person say, oh, I drive for Frito-Lay, or imagine whatever job that comes to mind when I think about this for you, I'm sure you've had that experience. You know, maybe someone says, what's like a, a culturally, generally maligned job? Oh, I work at McDonald's. Oh, I'm a, I'm a garbage man. And you go, oh, well, there you go. You know, you're trying to, you know, receive that, you know, you're, you're aware of how that sounds or how that lands given our social zeitgeist about uh, our uh, cultural uh, stereotypes about certain jobs and you're trying to in, in, you know indicate to them on some level or broadcast to them that hey you're supportive of them and hey let's continue the conversation and let's still be convivial I'm not going to use this against you or something something like that if we all approached maybe educational conversations that way or if people like myself uh, who are 38 and undergraduates if we you know, I don't know what the word would be, Um, but if we are mis-whatever, misgendered, mis-whatever, that we receive that with some grace, assuming it's not coming from a place of over-bigotry, right? Because sometimes, you know, there are people who say declaratively, like, oh, I will not use pronouns, I will not do this. And so, there is a way in which misgendering someone is is weaponized. You know, microaggression gets a bad rap, and uh, that's probably not entirely unjustified either. But uh, yeah, I'm just trying to acknowledge too. <laughs> I'm trying to uh, uh, recontextualize myself as someone who is a liberal. There's some of this stuff that I, I think is definitely worth considering, and and actually most of it we need to we need to internalize and utilize uh, on some level. And yet, I still believe that uh, you know, again, from what I know about this completely. Uh, um, uh, sort of related experience to me. It was just very telling to me. I, I just, I think that I, it's, again, it's it's not about, you know, the person that they're talking, it's for that person. You know, the fact that their default setting, if they, it, it just sort of, yeah, I don't know. It sort of, it sort of communicates to me a lack of self-awareness, which is like, I understand where you want the world to be and how you'd like to be perceived in the world. And I want that for you as well. And I, And it wouldn't be bad for the world either. And yet, let's be honest about where we're at. And it's just going to be exponentially better. I think for that person, that person would be happier if they just went through the world and were like, this sucks. It's a little hurtful every time this happens. And yet, if I was being fair to other people, they're probably not being malicious. And I'd say, hey, oh, you know what? Hey, I'm a Zoftig, like male presenting person with a huge beard. I totally understand why you would think I was male, but actually identify as female or whatever. And that give that person a chance to go, oh, shit, oh, wow. And then the lesson they take from that is, oh, I, I guess you just don't know anymore. Like, I really got to be better about that, you know? Because what people do is they get upset. Because when you make people feel bad about something that they actually shouldn't feel bad about, they get more entrenched. They actually don't like you anymore. And actually, you become a bad ambassador. 
for that position. You know, and I, I guess as I say that, I don't. It, you know, maybe PR is beside the point, right? Like, but that's also again, it's maybe it's just strategic or something like that, where it's like, yeah, one, I think you'll be happier. One is just bad for the cause because I think there's a way in which you know a lot of the way some of the left has been presenting themselves that I think actually people like want to go to the right. They're like, hey man, if this is where the left's at, fuck it, because that's not me. I'm going over here. If this is what's going on over here. I don't want to be a part of this party anymore. Not because they don't have sympathies for the cause, not because on some level they don't agree ideologically. It's because they're not going down the rabbit hole that they're being made to feel as if they're, you know, that they're somehow like Hitler youth or something like that. And it's like, you know, I'm not saying that they necessarily run and, and, and throw on a MAGA hat, but it's something like that, you know? And, um, you know, people will say, uh, you know, there's something about the left's comportment in their presentation in the last few years that is actually, you know, um, I can't think of the word, not a cause necessarily, but it's it's kind of feeding the general rise of conservatism, which is actually very present. I mean, the type of conservatism that we have in this country right now is, I mean, I remember being young. I came up in a period where George Bush was considered the fucking antichrist. You know, this was right around the time of the Iraq war. And, I mean, people on the left, and myself included, we thought George Bush was like the fucking antichrist. And we were like, oh my God, I didn't know it could get this bad for a conservative president. And this is having lived in a world of people like Ronald Reagan and Nixon. George Bush seemed to be some kind of like, uh, you know, when you think of like the Terminator movies, like the T-1000 of conservatives. None, I mean, if you had told someone that Donald Trump and Don, not just Donald Trump the person, but Donald Trump as the Donald Trump that we've all known him to be the type of person that we saw him present himself as would be president, I mean, liberals' heads would have exploded. But where does the where does this kind of I don't know what the I don't know what's after the T one thousand this kind of uh, uh, you know I don't know I'm trying to think of like a what's a type of immortal villain I don't know there's a great example here I I don't know what it is but. You know, this sort of final boss of conservatism. And actually, this is where it really gets scary. Because I had this thought too, which is now that Donald Trump is president, we've actually, we've seen this entire sea change in the presentation and the strategic efforts of conservatives generally. Of course, you have some conservatives who have kind of seen like the, uh, how do I say it, the, uh, the consequences that have come to bear on Donald Trump for like the way he acted. But I think what it really indicated to people is that they were trying to play by the left's rules for a while because we all kind of felt like we were on, although the, the, the right had some pretty insane views, they kind of kept those in check because they thought we were all playing by the same rules of what was socially acceptable. And then Trump came and blew the doors off that and people thought, oh shit, well, I'm just going to let my freak flag fly. My conservative freak flag is going to fly now. And the scary part is it's given people, how do I say it, uh, permission to ideologically go to some very scary places, and yet the person who comes after Trump is going to have learned from Trump's lessons and be a much more formidable political opponent. I mean, when Trump ran against the left, their whole position was like, oh, well, fuck this guy. Like, this guy's a joke. Like, they thought they were just going to walk all over him. The next person who comes along is going to be Trump 2.0, and they're going to have ideologically 
the same position as Trump. They are going to be able to tap into and evangelize the crazy segment of the population that Trump was able to sort of uh, mobilize to vote for him. An unobserved, unacknowledged, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a majority, but certainly a significant portion of the population who was living outside of polls, who was not being acknowledged, who the left didn't even know existed in this country, a quiet minority of people that can be uh, that could sway the vote, and that person is going to know how to reach in and tap into that that minority, but they're going to be much more sophisticated politically, and um, that's going to be very scary. That's something that we all got to watch out for. I don't know what that will look like necessarily, but it's going to be someone in a business suit. It's going it's going to be someone who speaks very well, and in a way, it's probably going to someone who be someone who kind of looks like the left. But underneath that will be a very, 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 very dangerous ideology. And I actually had this paper recently. There's there's two people I find very interesting. I may have mentioned that I saw this play um, that I streamed online. It's called, oh God, now I can't remember it. Straight Line. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. It's with Ralph Fiennes or Rafe Fiennes. I don't know how you say his name. I think that's it. Oh, no, no, is it? It's not Liam Neeson. No, it's like Ra- Ra- Ralph Fiennes, Rafe Fiennes, or whatever. The dude from Quiz Show, very, very good actor. You know who he is as soon as you see him. But he plays Robert Moses, um, and Robert Moses is the subject of a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography called uh, "The Power Broker," which is this uh, encyclopedic-length uh, uh, biography um, that won the Pulitzer and is very, very good. And I remember I heard about this while I was in New York City many years ago. Someone was reading it and they just told me, I didn't know who Robert Moses was, but they told me about this book they they were reading. And I knew instantly, oh, that's for me. So I ran home and as soon as I landed, I bought a copy and I haven't read the damn thing. It's sitting on my bookshelf. It's staring me down, but it's one of these things that I always think I'm going to get around to. But it, but it's a, it's a megalomaniacal kind of um, personality, very Trumpian, very prototypical Trumpian New York uh, development, civil works, but, you know, uh, demolishing and like building highways over uh, parks and in uh, low-income housing and all that sort of stuff. But a very fascinating personality. Um, Also, I'm taking this political science class where we learned about Huey Long. Now, if you're hip to politics, this may sound like a cliche and where the fuck has this guy been, but I did not know who Huey Long was. And Huey Long was a Louisiana governor, later a U.S. senator, in like early 1900s, from like 1923 to 1935, they were ended up being assassinated in like 1935. And this person was a Democrat, but was very prototypical Trump. They everything they did was like tainted with corruption. They were very power hungry, and the poor loved this person. You know, Ken Burns did a documentary about. I think the documentary is from like maybe oh, maybe like 2004 or something like that. You could probably, it's like a PBS documentary. I'm sure you could find it somewhere. But the poor of Louisiana loved Donald Trump. Uh, But, uh, sorry, not Donald Trump. The poor of Louisiana loved Huey Long, but he was uh, profoundly corrupt. Um, And uh, uh, clearly everything he did was for his own personal gain and profit. And it was for power. You know, I feel like I was talking about Elon Musk and I completely went left to center and I don't know if I even put a period at the end of that sentence. But I'm talking about this kind of masters of the universe syndrome or uh, disorder, masters of the universe syndrome or disorder that people live with. And um, Huey Long definitely fucking had that. And there's no doubt that Huey Long wanted to be president. 
And when you look at the, the way that he sort of operated politically, even at the state level, you know, you realize he was willing to do anything he could to maintain power. And I have no doubt in my mind that Trump would uh, do whatever it took, if he could, to just like become emperor of the United States. Now, why he would want to do that, I have no idea. I don't know why it's just not enough to like have your money and just be a celebrity and not deal with the public. But it's, it's, it's because people want power. And so the looming question for someone like Huey Long is, one, had he not been assassinated, what type of you know, politics could he have, what type of power could he have sort of uh, earned for himself? And then also, let's say he did become president. Is he the type of person who would have made himself like an emperor of the United States if he could have? And so basically, I had to write this paper for my political science class where I sort of looked at, you know, what types of checks and balances had the founding fathers established in the United States to sort of uh, keep power from concentrating in these sort of populist demagogues like Huey Long, like Donald Trump, and as it happens, though, do you think that those scaffolds or those stanchions of the political order are sufficient to withstand uh, somebody like Huey Long or Donald Trump? And my final evaluation is that probably not, meaning uh, a lot of the checks and balances can be corrupted. Um, and uh, I think we saw Trump trying to do that. But what I'm saying is the person who comes along, the next Trump, the Trump 2.0, I think will be aware of that. You know, there's a, uh, maybe we've talked about this, but again, there's something about the way that the, the right has sort of moved, which is they really, they thought that we were all playing by a certain set of rules, but Trump is one of those people who just decides, oh, actually, if you just throw the, you know, he's like the kid who like just bats all the other pieces off the board and says, I win. Because it's like, if you want to play by certain rules, it, the game is very hard. And that's what the left has tried to do, right? They they want to be polite, they're very public-facing, and they kind of want to win, quote, the right way. But when you have someone like Trump who's like, I don't give a shit, I'll do whatever it takes to win. The only thing I'm interested in is winning. Um, you know, it's like a cheat code. And there's plenty of people in the United States who respect that, you know? Because in business, it's just about the bottom line. You know, it's about the bottom dollar. A win is a win. And uh, that's, you know, that's what people want for politics or whatever the fuck. So the next person who comes along is going to know that. And um, yeah, I think uh, the thing that we have to fear is not Trump necessarily, although God knows I don't want him to be reelected. But the person we really have to fear is, uh, you know, whatever this like Masters of the Universe software syndrome is, uh, that person is going to come with a major uh, software update. And they're going to be much more sophisticated politically. And that's the person we have to look after. So anyway, yeah, maybe this feels like political whiplash. Because on the one hand, uh, I'm sure some people hearing this would think I sounded like uh, alt-right incel for the most of uh, our time together today. And then I ended talking and cautioning us against the dangers of Trump. So, But I think this is the point I'm trying to get at and the thing I've been thinking about, which is, again, I feel very much on the left. And I feel, at the very least, I'm, I'm very moderate on many issues. And yet there's a way I've been made to feel very conservative, which um, doesn't jive. And I want to be sympathetic, and I want to hear where people are coming from. And yet, um, there's something about the far left, which is, I feel like their position is divorced from reality. And also, you know, not, yeah, maybe just not generous enough. Uh, you know, yeah, like I said, there's something about where people have convinced themselves that intention doesn't matter. And again, I don't want to minimize you know, the impact that people's, uh, even their ignorance has on, has on people. But yet I, I feel, um, you know, you just sort of, uh, 
evangelize people against you when you treat them as something that's just blatantly not true. They're not trying to be dicks. Even if they are dicks, they're not trying to be one. So let's be a little bit more generous with people. And I think that will serve us all a lot better. But what can I say? Easy for me to say, right? Easy for the uh, cis white male from actually a, from a wealthy background to say that. So maybe I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So anyway, thanks for your time. And um, yeah, maybe we'll just pick this up next week. I feel like I'm at the end of therapy where we're, there's a lot more to say and yet we're out of time. And so we just have to say goodbye. And uh, I'll say we'll pick it up next week, but we won't. We'll talk about something completely different. I'll talk about some movie I'm watching. And um, I'll try to forget this ever happened. So anyway, I'm spent. Uh, So let's leave it here, shall we? So how do I always end? I say thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And ciao for now.